Titus chapter 3, we remember that this is God's Word. It says this. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 3, those verses that we read earlier. Titus chapter 3, it's page 1199 if you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles. What do, you, what do you think about when you think about God? What, what sort of words come into your head? Tozer said, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's quite a claim, isn't it? The most important thing about us is what comes into our mind whenever we think about God. Some people try to avoid thinking about God. I'm sure we know people like that who, who, who just if we raise it, they just push it away. They push it to the, to the sides, and that's, that's how they're living their lives. You might remember C.S. Lewis referring to his conversion and talking about God as, he whom I earnestly desired not to meet. That, that was how C.S. Lewis thought about God for a particular period in his life. And yet, he found, of course, that he couldn't push God out of his mind. One of the indications that God is at work in us, in our lives, is that we might have a sense that we're trying to escape from Him, but He is persistent in His pursuit of us. Maybe some of us are, are in that position. We didn't really want it to be this way, but we just find that God continues to press in upon us. That is the most marvelous thing. It's a work of His mercy and uh, listen to him as he does that. But what if we're Christians? Still, what we think about God is incredibly important. When we think of him, words like holiness might come to our, into our minds, words like Father, words like Lord or Almighty or love. And one of the words that we might not use just so often is the word kind, kindness. God is kind. And I hope that, that after we look at this part of the Bible together tonight, the kindness of God is something that we will think about a little bit more readily. How do we know that God is kind? Well, we, we would struggle to come to that conclusion, perhaps, if we just looked at the world around us. 
Dick Lucas, I, I heard say a little bit about this, and he said, you know, the, the, the world sends us ambiguous signals. It's very difficult to, to uh, come to conclusions about God as we look at the world. It, it, it's uh, difficult in the same way as we look at history. Again, there are ambiguous signals. There are mixed messages. It can be the same with our circumstances. If we were just to look at our circumstances, we might not necessarily come to the conclusion that God is kind. But what we do need to do is look to the Bible and see what it tells us about God, what God tells us about Himself through His Word, and that tells us that God is kind and has acted in kindness. You see it there in chapter 3, verse 4 of Titus, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And if we will believe that and allow it to sink into us, as it were, it will draw us out in response to Him and help us as we seek to live for Him. Now, as, as Paul speaks to Titus about the kindness of God, what he goes on to speak about is really the gospel. It's the good news. These verses, chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, are, are really one of those little gospel summaries. We, we know some of these gospel summaries in the Bible. John 3, 16 is one of the, the, the best known, a little nugget, as it were, that sort of just sums up the, almost the whole message of the Scriptures. And, and here is one here as well. And some people have actually thought that this is, is possibly an early Christian hymn or, or, or creed that, that, that new Christians would have learned. Great idea just maybe for us to learn it, if it was something that new believers learned 2,000 years ago. Some of us might think it's, a, it's an odd thing for Christians to learn the gospel, or indeed for Christians to think about the gospel more and more. Maybe we sort of think, well, it would be helpful for us if we want to explain it to other people. But, you know, I became a Christian when I was seven years old or 12 years old. Do, do I really need to think about the gospel now? Surely there's other stuff that I need to think about, more about living the Christian life. And yet the gospel We've often said this, the gospel is for Christians too. It's not just, Tim Keller says this, it's not just the ABC of the Christian life, not just the way into the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. We continue to need to be reminded of the gospel because if we're, we're not believing this salvation story, then we will turn to some other salvation story, some lesser salvation story, and any other gospel than this one will ruin our lives and ruin our walk. Luther uh, said about the gospel in his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther, he said, it is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. There's my, one of my mottos for ministry. I don't know if you've noticed that. I try to beat the gospel into you uh, continually and into myself as well. Now, now Titus is, is told really to do this because in verse 8, he is told to stress these things. Paul tells him to do this. Clearly, it is the church in which he is to stress this. 
It's not outsiders that he has in mind at this point. It is to those within the church, the body of believers. So, if you like to put it this way, the gospel is to be stressed in the church and proclaimed to the world. So, here we are tonight. We're stressing the gospel in the church, and Queen CU are going to be proclaiming the gospel to the world. And trust we are as we go from here too. Well, as we look at this summary of the gospel here, what is it we see? There, there are lots of aspects. It's really quite dense, and lots of things that we can take notice of. It's, it's a little bit like a diamond that's been really well cut, and you can look at it from different angles, and there are different faces to it. Uh, maybe the light catches a particular number of faces that we want to pay attention to tonight. So, four simple things that we're going to look at. Need, initiative, mechanism, and purpose. Four simple things. Need, first of all. The gospel comes as good news to those in a bad situation. We looked at this last time we were in Titus a little bit, but you see in verse 3 that Paul describes the life before Christ and the life outside of Christ, and it's not a pretty picture. You see verse 3? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So, as a result of our rebellion against God, sin has affected us on all sorts of levels, and particularly it has affected our thinking and our behavior and then our relationships, our thinking. Well, let's think of, first of all, in terms of our behavior. In terms of our behavior here, it says we are disobedient and enslaved. So, we think that we're free. We, outside of Christ, we think that we're free. We, we chase after our freedom, and in rejecting God's rule and doing our own thing in our disobedience, we actually find that we are enslaved. So, so everything that we pursue ultimately fails us and, and crushes us. We're enslaved. We think we're free, but we're enslaved. And in terms of our thinking, we are foolish and deceived. So, in the Bible, a fool is not necessarily someone who does not believe in God, but it is someone who lives as if God is not there. And, and as a result of the choices of so many, so many do this in our culture, and we've built up a culture then around us which denies God, and then sort of positive feedback almost occurs, and it deceives us into thinking that we can live without Him. So, we sort of, our culture reinforces itself in that thought that God should be pushed to the margins. We get frustrated at times, I know, many of us, because it seems so logical to us, and yet it seems so hard to have our friends grasp it. But when it comes to thinking about God, our friends are not neutral, but they are as we were and would be outside of Christ foolish and deceived. And, and that leaves us not just in a little bit of need for help, but it, leads, it leaves us in need for complete rescue. My eye was drawn to a, a story this week of a, a French climber who was rescued from a mountain in Pakistan. Uh, she 
was climbing with a partner, fifth highest mountain, I think, in the world, uh, called Pakistan's Killer Mountain. Notoriously difficult to climb. It has claimed many, many lives. And she and her climbing partner ended up stranded in a storm overnight without uh, any shelter. They were just in their, their, the, the clothes that they were walking in and climbing in. And her climbing partner died on the mountain. And she knew that if she was to be rescued, she would have to get down from that highest point. And she made her way, hallucinating, made her way very carefully down the mountain. And eventually, her rescuers met her. They sort of met halfway. Now, that's not a picture of how it is with us. It's not a picture of how it is with us. You see, we are, this girl, this French girl, she, she, she set out in search of rescue. She knew her need, and she set out in search of rescue. But you see, as, as unbelievers, our thinking and our behavior locks us into position. And so our rescuer needs to come all the way to us. And that's what God does. So we have a problem in our thinking and our behavior, and inevitably that spills then into our relationships lived in malice and envy, Paul says, being hated and hating one another. And you see, it's inevitable, isn't it? You, you, you bring together people who have the agenda of pursuing their own desires and serving the idol of themselves, and it is inevitable that situation of broken relationships and strife and hardship develops. So, so here's their need. We really are in a mess. And into that situation of need, the gospel comes. And that brings us to our second point, initiative. God takes the initiative. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's the main verb in, in what's going on. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. This is one of the really important buts within the Bible but God. We're in this terrible, hopeless situation, but God. He saved us. That's, that's the key. And He saved us, as it says here, not because of the righteous things that He had done. So, it is not that God looked at us and said, well, pretty rubbish lot, but there are a few decent ones amongst them, or there are a few that stand out as not being as bad as the other. You know, whenever uh, you get sent into Tesco's to get carrots. And you've got there at the end of the day, and there aren't many good carrots. They're, 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 they're loose carrots, right? And, and they're all little bits of black on them and, and all the rest of it. And, and, and you hook through them, and you, you get your wee bag, and you pick out the best ones. And you think, well, you know, maybe we'll be able to do something with these. It's not, again, what it's like. God does not pick through humanity to find the best of them. The reason God saves us is not based in anything in us at all. It's not that we are better than others. It is not that we have more potential than others. It's not in anything in us at all. Now, this goes deeply against the grain of our thinking. It's so much of... of of how our world works, and, and, and rightly at, at this level, is about performance and reward. We do something, we get rewarded for it. It's how it works in the workplace, isn't it? You, you have your performance review, you have your performance-related pay. It's how it works in school. You get the results that you deserve, 
or you hope you don't get the results that you do deserve sometimes. And, and th th those results open doors or they close doors. It's how it works even to some degree within relationships. If you want your, your friendship to work, you've got to, to invest in it, and then you get a, a benefit in it. But it's not how it works with our salvation. He saved us, the Bible says, not because of the righteous things that we had done, not because of righteous things that we had done. So, question is begged then, well, if it's not because of that, why does He save us? And verse 4 tells us, but because of His mercy. There's the reason. There's where the authorship of our salvation is located, in the mercy and love and kindness of God. It is His mercy that sent His Son into the world to be our Savior. In fact, His mercy and kindness is almost personified here in verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. That's a reference to the incarnation. That, that, that's the arrival of Jesus Christ on, on the first Christmas. So, if you had been in the fields around Bethlehem, and you had met some shepherds that were returning from the nativity, and you had said to them, what are you so happy about? Well, what have you seen? They could have said, well, we have just seen the kindness and love of God our Savior. Jesus is the kindness of God made visible, you see. Now, this helps us with one of those other places in which we go wrong as we think about God. Sometimes the impression is given that God the Father is angry and hostile. But fortunately, God the Son, who is nice and kind, sort of steps in and sorts it out. Sometimes that goes along with the idea that the God of the Old Testament is angry but the Jesus of the New Testament is gracious. That's not it at all. Jesus does not have to persuade the Father to save us. Salvation begins with Him. Salvation comes because of His mercy. You see, John says, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. It begins with the Father. Paul says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So, initiative, you see, the initiative rests with God and not with you. He more moved towards you when you were not thinking of Him. When you were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved. And listen, that, that's just the best news tonight. That's going to raise some questions for you, but it is the best news tonight because if he had responded to something within you, that means you're in trouble because it means your salvation ultimately depends upon you and you cannot bear that weight. You cannot take that responsibility. But if the initiative is his, then it depends upon him and his unchanging kindness and love and mercy. So you can breathe a sigh of relief and you can rest in the initiative of the God who saved. He saved us. Initiative. Third thing, mechanism. It's not a great word, but, but it's really just to raise the question, how does God do it? How does 
Paul say here that God saves? And here's a place in these verses where the gospel diamond is really finely cut. There are lots of details here. We could spend lots of time on any one of these. But you can see that the way in which God saves us is in part through the work of Jesus Christ. He is, as we said, the kindness of God made visible. So, because of our rebellion, we have incurred a debt. A punishment is due to us, a penalty, which is the wages of sin is death. The appropriate penalty for, for, for sin is death. So, so, in kindness towards us, God sends His Son into the world to take that penalty, to die in our place. The punishment that's due to us falls upon Him. And as a result, it says in verse 7, we are justified. It means that we're declared right in God's sight. The, the verdict which we would hope to have at the end of our lives is given to us now as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the great catechism answer to what justification is? Justification is an act of God's free grace where He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, our sins are forgiven on the one hand, and the perfect record of Christ's obedience is made ours. This great transfer takes place. He takes our sin, we receive His righteousness. He gets what we deserve, we get what He deserves. And this changes our relationship with God. We become heirs, it tells us here, Heirs are normally children, and of course, that's what happened. We are, uh, we are adopted into the family of God. It changes our relationship with God. It changes our destiny because we have eternal life, hope of eternal life here, hope referring not to something that's unsure, but something that we just haven't yet received in full. Now, you see, that's some of the things that the Son does with regard to salvation, according to these verses. But you'll notice that in these verses, all the members of the Trinity are involved, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, that's normally the, the order in which we talk about the three persons of the Trinity, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's broadly the order in which they appear in history, in, 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 in Revelation. So, we read of the activities of God the Father who sends His Son, who, who then returns to the Father and sends His Spirit. So, so, the order tends to be Father, Son, and Spirit, but the order here is changed. Do you see that? Now, the kindness and love of God is a reference to Jesus, but He's not named. He's not referred to by name until verse 6. The Holy Spirit is named and referred to before Jesus is named. Verse 5, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, if we're to ask why is this normal order of the persons of the Trinity, why is it changed here? It would seem that the answer is that we experience the work of the Spirit before we, we benefit from the work of the Son. So, so, this is how it happens within our experience. The Spirit is at work in us before we look to the Son. So, left to ourselves, we don't recognize who Jesus is, what He has done for us. But the Holy Spirit comes, opens our eyes, renews our stony hearts, as we were hearing from those verses earlier on, 
so that we see Jesus and we see what He's done for us. You see that the Spirit's work here is described as bringing us rebirth and renewal. Rebirth is what it means to be born again. It means that there's new life. So, so the, the, the beginning of a new life, and we need that because we're spiritually dead. If we go back to our, our mountain illustration, our French climber on the mountain, it is not just that we are injured on this killer mountain. It is that our life has expired. Our rescuer needs to come to where we are and breathe new life into us. And so, when, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Renewal carries some of those same ideas of a new beginning, but it stresses not so much a, a new life, but a transformed nature. So, this is not a, another life like the old one, but as a, a new one that is of a renewed direction, and God the Holy Spirit has brought this about. So, so let's be clear. Sarah is going to be giving her testimony on Thursday. You might be asked to give your story sometime. How did, how did you become a Christian? And you might say something like, well, you know, a friend invited me to church, and I heard someone speaking about my need and the Lord Jesus Christ and what He had done, and I realized that it was true, and I, I turned to follow Jesus. Or you might say, well, I met this person at work or at university, and there was something different about them, and, and then I realized that they seemed to have something that I didn't, and I, I found out that, that, was, that they were Christians. They had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and we talked about it. I came to Christianity Explored, and, and everything fell into place, and I became a Christian. Very appropriate to say those sorts of things. But what we need to realize is that as we're saying those sorts of things, there was also something happening underneath in our experience, and it was the Spirit's work of rebirth and renewal, bringing us to life, giving our hearts a new desire, enabling us to trust in Christ. So, Father, Son, and Spirit involved in our salvation. Father authors it. The Son accomplishes it. The Spirit takes what has been accomplished and applies it to us. Now, isn't that amazing? The Trinity involved in saving you and me if you're a Christian. How does that make you feel? What do you think you should do in response to that? Worship? Give? Witness? Those, those would all be really appropriate responses. Paul here takes us in a slightly different way. And that's our last point. Purpose, verse 8. This is a, a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I will probably say a little bit more about this next time, but you remember that, that, that Paul's great concern for the Christians that he writes to who were with Titus, or those who were with Titus whom he writes to, his concern was that they would live the good life, lives that were marked by obedience, lives that, that, that issued forth in, in good works. And here Titus is told to stress the gospel 
so that that sort of life will result. So there is a, a gospel implication, a gospel expectation. And it's not just that we are the most grateful and thankful people that ever walk on the earth. We should be. It's not just that we are full of praise and, and, and joy, though we should be. It is also that it works out in a life that is, as Paul says here, devoted to doing what is good. So, so, so we could sort of turn this around and we could say, well, if we don't find that we have such a devotion to, to doing what is good, well, then there's a problem with our, the first part of that equation, isn't there, with our relationship with the gospel. Either we've not entered into it and benefited from it, either we, or, or, or we, we don't understand it, or, or, or we've, we're not living in the light of it. For make no mistake about it, Paul expects results from the gospel, hard results, visible results, good results. You see, actually, in this passage, verses 1 and 2 are the sort of life that Paul is looking for. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceful and considerate, to show true humility towards all men. How on earth do you get people like that? Do you know how? You stress the gospel. Because as we think about what God has done for us, as we know that Father, Son, and Spirit have been involved in, in bringing us to Himself, though there was nothing in us that called for it, then we offer our lives to Him and say, Lord, take me and use me. Make me useful for You wherever I go. Take me into that workplace where I know people don't want to know about the Lord Jesus. Take me into that university where people grill me every day. Take me to, to my neighbor who doesn't want me to speak, but is happy if I serve them. And through that service, that they'll see something of Jesus. You see? Stress the gospel. Reflect on the gospel. Soak up the gospel and see what it produces. Do you see what God has done for you if you're here and you're a Christian? It didn't start with you. That's good news. It doesn't depend upon you. That's good news. Nor should it end with you. And that should be good news for others. Let's pray. Lord, what marvelous words. He saved us. How thrilling, Lord, to be able to praise you that we are the recipients of the kindness of our God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to stress these things together in our own lives and also to live out the implication of that 
as we go into this week to live for you in the places that you've put us. And we pray in Jesus' name.